Welcome to Preaching Matthew, our segment of Concordia Journal Currents, where we will look at the uh, lectionary readings from the Gospel of Matthew and consider how we might approach them in preaching. My name is David Schmidt. I teach homiletics at Concordia Seminary St. Louis. I also hold the Greg H. Bennett Chair in Homiletics and Literature. And with me this morning in our roundtable conversation are Dr. Jeff Gibbs, who is the head of the Department of Exegetical Theology and also the author of a two-volume commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, published by CPH. I would also like to welcome Dr. Rawl, who is the pastor of Timothy Lutheran Church here in St. Louis and has also served as a missionary in Papua New Guinea and earned his uh, demin in preaching from Concordia Seminary St. Louis. Welcome. Good to be here. Good to be here. Yep. I think the, um, this segment we're going to look at preaching the life of Christ from Matthew. So it'll be the major feasts in the life of Christ. And I think that one of the things that the three-year lectionary provides preachers is the opportunity to work with a particular gospel and how that gospel presents these days or events in the life of Christ. And so this year is Matthew. And so I think one of the overarching themes is going to be how is the, um, the story of the life and death and resurrection of Christ perhaps a little bit different in the Gospel of Matthew than in Mark or in Luke. Mm-hmm. So, good. so why don't we start with uh, Christmas. Uh, the Christmas Eve reading will be from Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And um, when I think of Christmas, for some reason, I just immediately go to Luke. I mean, that's where our hymnody <laughs> tends to be. I've got a manger. I've got... Right. Animals, you know, right. and all a, of a mean innkeeper, a mean innkeeper, Bethlehem, and the, and the, the angels, the shepherds, everything, yeah, all of all this there. stuff. Right. Right. And it is kind of puzzling. I mean, I ask myself sometimes when you're preaching on a text from a gospel, I ask myself, what would it be like if this was the only right. gospel we had? If, the, if if all I had was Matthew, how would I preach the Christmas story? And I think that's what happens on Christmas Eve. Uh-huh. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on. <laughs> how this might affect preaching if we're only working with Matthew. Well, I, one of the things that jumps out immediately is, is the whole concept of fulfillment, which Matthew is very concerned about, not only in the nativity story, but in, throughout the gospel. But, you know, the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. And um, so he's, he continually brings that up. Right. Um, and then I think it's interesting that Joseph plays a, a more important role in Matthew's yeah. gospel. Then we don't hardly see him in, in Luke's account, right. but in Matthew, well, Mary and Luke. yeah, it's Mary and Luke, that's but right. here it's Matthew. Right. So I think that's, that's a unique aspect of this, the story from right. Matthew's perspective. Yeah, so if you wanted to, and this is actually a challenge, I think, for modern uh, preaching, at least North American preaching, because we don't tend to have a sense of history, of waiting, and yet, of course, all the Gospels are like this, but Matthew does have kind of a uniquely strong emphasis upon, okay, it's finally happening. And, and in many and various ways, uh, you know, Jesus is fulfilling the fact that he begins with a genealogy, you know, leading up to the, the I, I sometimes call it, I don't know if this is right, the Annunciation to Joseph. Is that? I mean, that's kind of what Matthew 1 actually is. The angel, he talks to Joseph only. You know, somehow Joseph has found out that Mary is pregnant. He knows it's not by him, so two plus two normally equals four. Um, so, uh, so yeah, David, it, what's, it, what's interesting, I think, if, if <laughs> I'll say it this way, if we just had Matthew, we wouldn't celebrate Christmas at all because none <laughs> of the texts are Christmas texts per se. 
See, I, I, you noted we were talking about this before that that Advent four is Matthew one eighteen to twenty five. Right. Yeah. You see, and that's a big challenge because you're going to have the exact right. same text for Advent four and right. Christmas. Right. And it's really an Advent text because it's sometime before the event, and then at the very end, you know, Joseph kept on not knowing her. You know, Matthew is quite emphatic that it's a virginal conception and virginal birth um, in fulfillment of the prophecy. Uh, uh, but, but, and then, uh, so you get a kind of a trailer comment about the fact that Jesus was born. And then you get the Magi who show up, and this of course is historically difficult to harmonize with Luke, but sometime later. So the Magi is Epiphany. So you don't actually have Christmas yeah. in Matthew. Yeah. So as a Matthew guy, my philosophy is preach on Luke, <laughs> except in series A. So, uh, but in a sense, though, isn't a sense though? Doesn't that historically doesn't that actually mirror the Christmas event? That it was something that no one in power, in a, I mean, well, yes. in power, Herod noticed it yes. later, but but right. at the time, no, that's exactly It was right. this obscure little thing happening in the, in the wrong city, right? In the wrong city, right? right. Uh, so, in a sense, I mean, maybe the the absence of Christmas is actually an opportunity for talking about the obscurity right. of this working of God. Well, and, and, this, and this is actually one of the themes that uh, really shines through in, in I, I think, virtually every text in the first major section of Matthew, and that is to say, when God shows up to do what he's going to do, it's not what you would think it would be. And he doesn't do it in the way that you expect him to. So the obscurity, the unexpectedness, I mean, it's just, these texts are just saturated with human beings not getting it mm -hmm. until God reveals it. Mm -hmm. So that in and of itself is, is obviously rich uh, grist for the homiletical mill. And wow. um, so, so even the fact that uh, this is making a little too much of one adverb, but in 118, you know, now the, the birth or the origin, however you want to translate Genesis, uh, of Jesus Christ was like this. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I preached, you know, last uh, Advent on this text, and I made a fairly big deal of it. It was like this, not like you'd think it was going to be. Because Joseph, again, in the ancient world, they're not stupid. Two plus two is four. Uh, and uh, God is going to be present with his people through Jesus, through a man, through a baby. I mean, Really, there's lots of that kind of stuff going on. And, well, and, and that kind of carries through in, in the rest of Matthew's Gospel, too, because the kingdom of heaven is like this. And it's right. not expected. Right, not like it, that. It's, no, you know, so that right. the way God establishes his kingdom, the way he kings, the way he rules, is not at all what, what we people would expect. That's exactly and so that's, you know, it's a, it's a good introduction to, mm -hmm. you know, the whole gospel, to say it that way and yes. to help people appreciate, you know, that Christmas wasn't, as you said, anything that people were thinking about and planning for. It was just, it just happened, and then only later could they look back and say, right. what was this that took place? Right, right. right. Yeah, so it actually, uh, when you talk about obscurity, my brain went click. Oh, that's exactly right. Yeah. I hadn't quite thought about it in that way before, but it does and, and, you know, this can be either law or gospel, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because if you're wanting God and even insisting that God work a certain way, mm -hmm. then this, this simply becomes something to destroy that expectation. But if you're afraid 
that you don't fit into the way that God is going to work or that you somehow don't belong. Well, guess what? The most unexpected things happen and the most unexpected believers believe. And I, I tend to think that Christmas, Christmas culturally in a congregation, mm -hmm. Christmas is often a time where people have a sense of not belonging. Okay. Either because this is not a church they normally attend or they're not, right. they, they feel like, right. you know, I'm visiting, I'm coming here, but I'm not really part of this. Or people have uh, issues of, of brokenness within their families themselves. Right that caused them to feel as if this really isn't for me or our family is not what we want it to be at Christmas time. Yes. And so in a sense, there could be a, a kind of a message for those who feel that they don't belong. Right, right. Those that who are broken. How come we're not all happy here the way everybody else is happy? Right. Well, guess what? It's not a happy world. Right. You know, Joseph is going to divorce Mary secretly. Herod right. tries to kill the baby <laughs> right. Jesus. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is... You know, this is not a happy world, but yet it's into this world that God... Still in this, in this, in the midst of this is Unexpectedly, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So you don't need 1 Corinthians to get strength and weakness, wisdom right. and foolishness. You don't need it. You, you can do it right here in Matthew. So yeah. it's really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a much different... I think it, it gives a whole different tenor to the, to the celebration yeah. of Christmas. Yeah. Luke is a little more uh, spectacular. Um, and you still have reversal because yeah, he do. cast down the mighty from their thrones, right? Right, and the shepherds being the ones who are exactly. But snooze. you do get a host, a heavenly An host going. Right, the whole <laughs> <heavens> <laughs> open. right, yeah. right. Yeah, right. Here yeah so it is. It is different in that sense. So right. Uh, could you say something a little bit about the magi? Because uh, I think a lot of people call them kings. Yeah, we right. three kings, right. <laughs> and they're from the so, Orient. So, yeah. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, magi are a, a sort of a class of, um, of persons that's known in the ancient world, different cultures and, and nations. Um, what's, uh, what's significant, I think, and, uh, and here the work of Mark Allen Powell has been very helpful to me. Um, uh, if you try to put yourself in the position of a first century early Jewish Christian reader, who's, you know, something like that is the target audience probably of Matthew's gospel. When he says in uh, chapter 2, uh, verse 1b, he says, of course, you know, Matthew likes to say, behold, right? Mm -hmm. You do, see? When he says, behold, magi from the east appeared in Jerusalem, I mean, that's really a behold moment. <laughs> because magi are bad guys. You know, they're not kings, they're the servants of kings. And, and to call them wise men is to beg the question of, in what area are they learned? See? And see, the fact of the matter is, is they're idolaters. They're sorcerers. You know, the term magos, you know, plural ma magoi, in the Septuagint occurs only in Daniel 2, where it's in the list of the Chaldeans and the sorcerers who can't interpret, you know, the king's dream and da 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 So they're not so wise. Well, they're wise <laughs> in the wrong stuff. Yeah. It's not just they're not, it's, they are, they're not wise in the things of the God of Israel, you know. Um, and in the New Testament, I think this is right, the only magos you get in the New Testament is this guy on the island of Crete where he opposes Paul, Elymas, you know, and Paul, you know, you know he blinds him. Yeah. You son of the devil, he calls him, see. So to say that Magi appeared from the East saying, where's the king of the Jews has been born, is completely unexpected. So they're not kings, and they're not wise, at least in what you're supposed to be wise in. 
Well, is, it, is there a little bit of fear as to why would this people want to know of this? Well, it's just unexpected. It's this unexpected theme again. And, and it's, this is the first time, that, you know, they're almost certainly Gentiles, right? Mm -hmm. This is the first time, and we, we all know, oh, Matthew has this theme of Gentiles really getting it. Mm -hmm. You know, the centurion in chapter 8 and the Canaanite woman and finally the centurion at the cross. I mean, these are the only people that really get who Jesus actually is. Now, they don't get it because they're smart. They get it because God hides things from the wise and understanding and reveals them to babies. So how is the Jewish reader going to be responding? He's going he's to be uh, shocked. Pretty amazed that, that the Gentiles would even show up in this story. Exactly. The first these, this kind of Gentile. But then Matthew, you know, in, in the genealogy, has already, already given us a clue. Exactly. Gentiles are going to be a part of this story. Right. And then right away we get them at the I very know, beginning. So it, it would have been, I think, shocking for, for Jewish people to realize that God would reveal this to Gentiles. They're the ones who are coming. Every, all the Jews in Jerusalem are shocked. They, and they're they don't afraid. Even, they don't even know. Yeah. 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 Well, what's kind of fun is that in the, in the narrative of the, this unit itself, the Magi are not even re, uh, they're not narrated as all that bright, if I could say it that way. You know, they, first of all, they go to the wrong city, right? <laughs> because Jesus isn't born in Jerusalem, right. so they, they have to ask. So they're within the ballpark, you know. They're like B-minus students or C-plus, you know. But then they make the mistake of asking Herod about another king, right? Uh, they have to be guided by a star to get to where Jesus is. And that's, of course, a discussion about where is Jesus right. at this point and how long a time has period. And then, this is the greatest thing of all. Well, they offer gifts to Jesus, but they're just the kind of gifts that you'd offer to an ordinary king. See, we, we allegorize the gold of frankincense and myrrh, right. but right. these are just, yeah. you know, this is a, these are what you'd bring to, you know, King Ron of, of a Persia or something, see? Well, Jesus isn't an ordinary king. Well, at least, yeah, I mean, again, they're not portrayed as really smart, you know, and we, we think, you know, we read the stars and right. we put together right. the prophecies, and I mean, this is complete speculation. So they are actually like the children in the children's well, magic who walk the wrong way. <laughs> But see, what, but, so the good news is not that they're wise, not that they're smart. Yeah. Oh, and then they have to be warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because they would, you know. Apparently. It's, yeah. I mean, why else would Matthew narrate that they had to be warned in a dream to depart by another way? See? So the point is not that they're smart. The point is that God is guiding, is guiding them, and he has revealed to these unexpected candidates for faith who in some real true sense. I mean, they are the good guys in the text, but not because they're wise, not because they're smart, but because, because God God's has... working. Because God's working. Which right. kind of, for some reason, because you've been referencing Paul in Corinthians, it takes me to, not no. many of you were noble. Well, exactly. Not many no, of you no, were wise. No, it's, it's, <laughs> right. it's really quite, that's, that's quite right, David. It's so a homiletical move could be that we, we actually should feel very... Right welcome right. in this text. Right. Are we allowed right. to sing on these recordings? <laughs> I'm sure we are. Well, uh, they can well, always edit it a out. A very, very clever MDiv student, uh, Mark Burkholz, you, you yeah. might remember, he, he, I, I sometimes give a lecture on this text called, I call it Two Kings and Some Fools, because <laughs> you've got Herod and Jesus, and then you've got the Magi. And so he rewrote the, the Christmas carol, and I don't remember it all. It's very clever, but I do remember how it starts. It starts like this. We poor Magi haven't a clue. 
where to go or quite what to do. <laughs> da, 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 da. And, uh, and he really captured in a very funny way, clever way, uh, yeah, this theme that it's not, it's not about the Magi. Mm -hmm. in, in that sense, <laughs> this may sound odd, they're not role models any more than babies are role models or little children. With the exception of the fact that when they find Jesus, they worship him. That's a surprising thing, too, because they don't seem to, you know, they're looking for a king yeah. because of the star, but they don't really know what kind of king, because as you said, the gifts that they bring are the kind of gifts you'd bring to an ordinary king, right. but then they worship. Yeah. That's, that's unique, and I think that's, you know, where we're led to by, exactly. by God. In that sense, there are there to be our pattern. Mm -hmm. But again, they leave behind their pagan worship. Mm -hmm. uh, in the early, in the history of the church, oh, this is uh, clever. They, they, we all know they're not kings, but um, they come to be regarded as kings commonly in the history of the interpretive tradition of the church after Constantine. Mm -hmm when you begin to need models in the Bible for godly kings, right? Mm -hmm. They come to be widely regarded as sort of the best of pagan knowledge. You actually get that kind of a common comment in reliable scholars' works uh, after the Enlightenment. Mm. Okay. When reason, you know, they figured this out, they're wise in that sense. So this is a perfect example of how culturally we fill in the gaps to exactly. get what we want exactly. and need. And part of the message would be, who could come to worship the king? And the answer is, anybody. Even Magi, even me, even you. I mean, it's really a beautiful story. Because that God draws them. Exactly, exactly. So it's, yeah, it, it's, um, it's really a remarkable opportunity. To. In, a, in a sense, you know, the, uh, the collect for the day comes from one of uh, Cramner's collects. Okay. And uh, the, uh, you know, it's something about, you know, oh God, you who led the wise men from the East, or you who led the, the I don't know exactly the term, but. These, by the guiding of a star. By the right? guiding of yeah. a star. But then it's, it's lead us, right? Lead us. Now, yeah. in Cremner's collect, it says, lead us. So that after this life, right, we may experience something like the surpassing gloriousness of the Godhead, which right. is just this this kind of this entrance. This life is an entrance into a much fuller realization of who God is and right. what God is doing, and this right. is just the beginning of it. Now, yeah. in our colleague, we changed it. We said, "Lead us, lead us, who know you by faith, to." know you in heaven in your fullness, which kind of takes right. us out of this earth into a heavenly realm. Right. But I mean, I right. think the emphasis on this greater discovery of yeah. who God is yes. and what God is yes. doing, happening in a very humble, odd, strange beginning. And it requires the leading of God. And it's God's initiative. No, that, that, so that, right. that is quite, I think, consistent with, you know, what Matthew, at least part of what Matthew wants us to get here. So, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, I, not surprisingly, when I would pray that collect, the week of Epiphany, I, would, I changed it to, now, now lead us to know you in the new heavens and the new earth. Right, right, yeah, because it says, yeah, yeah it does yeah. kind of create this, this kind of leave disembodied the earth, state, yeah. heavenly Be, realm. Beam me up, Scotty, right, right. I like to say, yeah, yeah. yeah. So really, it, it is a beautiful story about those who have unexpectedly been brought to worship the king. Um, 
and uh, and not because of some quality that they have, some intelligence, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but simply uh, by God's gracious revelation. I, I mean, the doctrine that faith is the gift of God is not just found in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You know, right. it's all over the Bible. Although we're, we're concentrating on Matthew, you know, we can, we can pair this with what Luke, read, you know, that, that it's shepherds who are the right. first ones. That's a similar way, right. Mm -hmm. You yep. know, it's people at different ends of the spectrum, unexpected kinds of people that would be brought to the worship of the, the, the baby. And uh, so that, you know, that embraces us too. We're included in that because we are not outside the realm of this, how God reveals himself right. to people. A high IQ doesn't seem to be a spiritual gift. In fact, it can be, as we all know, a detriment. Right. I mean, it can really... It can get in the way. Knowledge it, puffs it, up. Exactly, exactly, up. yeah, right. yeah. I mean, what counts is to believe in Jesus and to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why does that take a certain kind of IQ? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it doesn't. So, so, dang, we should repent. Let's move on to the baptism of Jesus. Oh, and um, I think in the lectionary, you'll have the flight into Egypt and then the baptism of Jesus. And are those two in any way connected in, in Matthew's gospel? Well, I, I actually, the theme that Ron highlighted at the very beginning is precisely what binds them together, the theme of fulfillment, I think. Uh, this is, so for instance, we have chapter divisions, right? But listen to what it sounds like if you ignore the chapter division. Okay. This is really, so uh, we have the, the Magi uh, leave and then, you know, Joseph, Joseph takes the Holy Family and he's warned and then he comes back. And uh, so verse 21, for instance, he got up and he took the child and his mother and he entered into Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to depart there. So, because he was warned in a dream, he's not getting much sleep uh, these days, <laughs> he departed into the regions of Galilee, and coming, he dwelt in a city which is called Nazareth, in order that the things spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, that he will be called a Nazarene. And in those days, John the Baptist appeared. Now, we all know there's 30 years or something, but if you, if you read the narrative, it's just seamless. And what days are those? They are the days of fulfillment. Because John is the one spoken through Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling. See, so, so that's what actually binds them together is this, this theme of the promises of God actually being enacted in the world and how to somehow invite our people to appreciate that and to put themselves into God's story uh, in that way is a challenge because we don't think about the past. I mean, Ron, you, your experience in the mission field, I mean, in Papua New Guinea, I'm just guessing, I mean, they have a much stronger sense of belonging to the past. Uh, Americans don't care about the past. Now, they can go back in their mythology to seven or eight generations right. and right. describe how it happened. And, and they're connected to it. It's very important. It, it matters yeah. to them. Yeah. You know, we don't, we're mobile. Americans we are just future-oriented. Yeah, we can't even remember who, who, was, um, <clears throat> who was Bill Clinton's first vice presidential running mate. I just made that up. The answer is, I don't know. Why, why should I remember something in the past? Important? Yeah, exactly. Well, we do tend to, I think we do tend to go to the past in times of crisis. Okay. I mean, I would okay. say that we, we, instead of envisioning a better future, instead of having hope, we have nostalgia. Okay, okay. That, that will turn toward 
cocooning, they call it, or okay. you know, gathering together with the family, trying to recapture the nostalgia. Sort of, of circling the wagons in a mm -hmm. sense, okay. right, and hoping that to find some type of refuge in the past. Right, right. right. But uh, but you're right. I don't think it's part of our uh, uh, current activities. We're, right. we're often trying to right. leave it behind as we move forward. Yeah. So th so maybe in the preaching task, then it's to take an ancient promise and bring it forward into the present and then maybe even into the future from there. So the same God fulfills his promises to you that he made long ago. Okay. Whether it's historically long ago when you were baptized. We well, see now this is the I think this is the struggle with the baptism of Jesus because yes. the epistle reading is really going to be asking us to read our baptisms right. somehow in light of or in relationship to the baptism mm -hmm. of Christ. And so right. what, maybe if we could just kind of unpack what does the baptism of Jesus mean in Matthew and then try to think about how that could somehow relate to our own. Well, and Matthew is Matthew's really the one of the, of the synoptic gospel writers who has John, you know, this conversation. You don't really have that in, in Luke or Mark. It's where John says, why are you coming to me? You know, John realizes this is... Another un person who doesn't have a clue. <laughs> well, and another unexpected act of unexpected. God. Yeah. Oh, that's right. It's not the way you would do it. Jesus doesn't right. need this. I need it. Uh, so why is Jesus here? And so he really, he really asks us to, you know, to, to answer that question. What, what is Jesus doing when he comes to be baptized? Why does that happen? Why is it necessary? So we shouldn't skip it. No, it's, yeah, yeah. it's crucial. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really the only gospel that really forces us to deal with right. that question. Yeah, yeah, because Mark is, I mean, the baptism of Jesus itself is, is uh, I think it's a participle. Mm -hmm. And then what you focus upon is the tearing of the heavens right. and that apocalyptic mm -hmm. event. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, actually, you know, who is Jesus here? And, and part of the answer is that he is the nation. Matthew has already begun to portray him as the one who in himself sums up the whole of Israel, mm -hmm. which is a very slippery notion for moderns, maybe for anybody. Because, first of all, the genealogy, he sums up the history of Israel, but then the citation from Hosea in chapter 2, out of Egypt, Egypt I called my right. son, is a, is a, is a typological uh, way of applying an Old Testament reference that originally was talking about the Exodus, the people of God, uh, Exodus 4.22, uh, go and tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, let my people go. See, in the Old Testament, the nation is called the son of God more often than the king or anybody else. The nation is God's son, firstborn son, see. So out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that one didn't work because they ran after the Baals. See, but this son, this son will succeed and he will succeed vicariously in the place for the sake of sinners. So, and then of course, after Jesus is baptized, this is my son. Where is Israel to be found? Where are the, where's the people of God? Him, see. And he, go down, he goes down into the water, which is dirty with sin, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And he places himself there with his people. Exactly. Yeah. What I think is, I mean, he looks like any other sinner. 
if I, if I was there. Well, and Luther has a, has a marvelous sermon, and it's actually at the occasion of a baptism. Luther actually suggests that Jesus begins at the baptism to take sin upon himself. Mm. Mm. Now, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Mm. I like it very much. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if Matthew is investing all that, but nevertheless, it's the right uh, move. The baptism of Jesus is, it shows, it's, and it's fitting for that reason. See, in this way, there's in this way again, see, it is fitting now for us to fulfill all righteousness. He stands in the place of sinners because that is the shape of what he's come to do. What do you think we, we make of, you know, in, in Luke and Mark, the voice from the Father says, you are my son. And here in Matthew it says, this is my son. Yeah. The same language as the transfiguration. At the baptism of Jesus, it's... God, the Father is speaking to His Son, mm -hmm. confirming who you are. So you know, the, you know your purpose. You're my Son. Right. This is why you have come. Right. And in the Transfiguration, it's more for the disciples' benefit. This is my Son. Listen to Him. But here in Matthew, in the baptism, it's this is my Son. It's interesting. Matthew does not highlight the presence of the crowds at all. He doesn't mention them. He doesn't say they reacted. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Luke actually, I think, tells us that all the people were standing there, you know, so, so Luke actually has the people uh, highlighted right at that moment. But I, I just wonder if we're supposed to hear that and say, oh, that's who he is. Well, and, and maybe because, because the focus here is a little bit more on John, because of his dialogue, maybe it's sort of confirmation for John. This yeah. is my son. And uh, th this is how you will know him. He is... He's the one who has come from me. Right. When it comes to fulfilling all righteousness, this is about God's plan of salvation, how yeah. this is going to be filled. And I do think that that's what fulfill all righteousness means. It, it means enacting the prophesied plan. Mm -hmm. so, it, so in that sense, it's God's righteousness. And every, every aspect of Jesus' ministry is part of the plan. Exactly. Even, even this. Even where he lives. Yeah. He lives in Nazareth in fulfillment of prophecy, mm -hmm. not just because he's from there. So you think if you, if you get into that larger picture of that larger reign of God work of Jesus, yes. then it might be easier to get into the idea of this is the one into whom we are baptized or made children of God this? In this way, oh, standing with sinners, where does that take him? To the cross, right? To the empty tomb. Oh, and then now we're in Romans 6. Now we're ready for right. Romans yeah, 6. Don't skip over. You, you get to talk about Jesus a lot before talking about how we are adopted mm -hmm. into this one. Because we're not baptized into his baptism. We're baptized into his death yeah. and his resurrection. We, we put on his righteousness. The righteousness that had to be fulfilled by Jesus in yes. all of these steps now becomes ours. And so, so I mean, that's an important part exchange. of he's, yeah. he's taking that upon himself exactly. our sin, and he's granting unto us yep. his righteousness. Right. The sermons that I've heard have been wonderful Lutheran sermons, but they end up not being about Jesus mm -hmm. and what happened to him. They end up being about, not about us, but they end up being about our baptism. And it's not that there's no connection. Well, and I mean, there's, there's something odd about just the whole activity of what's going on, because if I was a Jew and I was concerned about my sin, I think I might go to the temple. I mean, that's right. where God has promised to be. Right. That's where God has given me th things that, you know, sacrifices for the sake of sin. And yet, 
we've got everyone running out of Jerusalem and all of the area to come to this obscure prophet confessing their sins, this sense of neediness and getting into this water. And it's in this place that Jesus comes and then does this very strange thing that even the prophet himself was, you know, John the Baptist himself was confused about. So, so I mean, in a sense, what I'm, kind of what I'm thinking yeah, in my mind right. homiletically is that the place where we are very comfortable to go is to the baptismal font, to the things that are happening in the church as we talk about forgiveness of sins. But what this text is actually asking us to do is to go out for a moment into the wilderness yeah. and to see the yeah. strange things of God yeah. and, and to be there to see this and then to follow this Jesus. And at that point, then what's happening in the church begins to make sense after the death and resurrection. I mean, that might be a, a way of working with. If Jesus is Israel. He's the new Israel. And he's Emmanuel. He, he is, is the presence of God. Yeah. And all Israel is going out to John. Right. Well, that's where he's going to be too because right. that's where he exactly. identifies with them. And then, then the father says, this is my son. Right. And right. that's, that's crucial because he'd always, like as you said, he, Israel was my son, my right. firstborn son. Exactly. Now this is my son. So you better pay attention. You better follow him because this is the plan of righteousness. This is the plan of salvation being yep. enacted um, in, the, in front of all people. So if you want to know where God is at work, the answer is wherever Jesus is. Mm -hmm. Oh, now we're ready for the word. Now we're ready for absolution. The problem is that he goes to the strangest places. Well, he does. Right. Yeah. 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 And uh, so, right. So right. following him is not going to be an easy journey at all um, times. That's the non-festival half of this. I know. I know. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. No, you're, you're quite right. Foxes have holes. Yeah. Birds have nests. The you know, it's interesting. I don't, I don't want to keep bringing up Papua New Guinea, but I noticed that, you know, baptismal services in New Guinea were often pretty large affairs because groups of people would be baptized together. Mm -hmm. if, you want, if you were doing evangelism in a new place, yeah. you'd wait till everybody was ready to be baptized. Uh -huh. So maybe 70, 80 baptisms at uh -huh. once. Uh -huh. <laughs> and almost always, the text that was chosen to be preached then was the temptation of Jesus. You have been baptized like Christ oh. was baptized. What happened to him? He went into the wilderness. He wow. was tempted. You're going to be oh. tempted too. Now the devil is going to come You've after you. You've made yourself an enemy. Luther's That's comment, right? right? Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Huh. You're going to face this. They knew what was going to happen to right. people who were coming out of paganism yes. into, you know, a relationship with God. Yes. That, that was going to, they were going to face the temptations Interesting. Of the devil. Interesting. The battle is now joined. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Wow. And, well. for, and for Jesus, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's going into the wilderness, you know, is that's what he's, he's come to encounter the devil yes. and uh, to defeat him. Right. So he doesn't, you know, sort of dance around the edges. He goes right into the... Right into the heart, heart of it. Yeah. Right, right. And again, because Israel long ago had failed. <clears throat> right, They had gone through water, and then in the, in the wilderness, wilderness they complained, they whined, they thought they needed more than everything that passes out of the, word, the mouth of God. Yeah. So, yeah. So you still get, Jesus is still in, the, it's, um, the uh, temptation of Christ is still vicarious. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not primarily... He's not primarily there our model mm -hmm. for how we can resist temptation. Right. He's actually more of our champion right. who is doing battle on our behalf. And interestingly, it sounds like the way you're speaking of it. I mean, we're obviously in the temptation now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, yeah, we've segued into that. <laughs> but the, uh, it sounds as if it's, he's, 
my champion, but when I say my, it's more a sense of my people, my right. history. Our. Our history, right. right. It's not so much, right. I mean, although there is that individual connection, that this yes. emphasis upon the recapitulation of the history of Israel right. in this sun, right. now is a, there's a much broader awareness, a much more communal awareness, Hopefully. Uh, as I look at what this right. Jesus is doing. Right, yeah. and that, I mean, that for us in our context is a great and unending challenge that we would think of ourselves as actually members of a people. Right. That, that we are Jerusalem, we are Israel, right. uh, because he is. And, yeah, but that, I mean, yeah, you get together once in a one hour a week yeah. with most of the people you never met, mm-hmm. you know, it's a little bit of a difficulty. Yeah, Ron is grinning because he faces it like all Which the is time. much different than what you were saying about Papua New Guinea, yeah. Yeah. where there is a, a very communal right. yeah. aspect to that. Kinship right. yeah. key, yeah. Now, the, um, with the uh, temptations in Matthew, they have a different ordering mm-hmm. than in Luke. Is right. there significance to that in the larger narrative realm? Or That's a level two signifier. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, um, well, the answer certainly is yes. The question is, what is it? Yeah. And there's probably a lot of these profound texts. There's probably more than one. There has to be more than one answer, right? But, but I've actually, and, and uh, Paul Robbie actually suggested this to me years ago, um, and I think he even used the phrase that the temptation sequence in Matthew gives a descending Christology. That is, you start out with Satan assuming, that Jesus, rightly, that Jesus has the power to meet his own needs, you know, turn these stones into bread, see? Man doesn't live by bread alone. And then he moves to, okay, Jesus is needy, but God has power to save him. See, so cast yourself down. He will, Psalm 91, I think it is, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but then he moves to, okay, Jesus is going to serve somebody. He's going to be somebody's servant. So if you serve me, I'll give you everything. And Jesus says, in a saying that is often misunderstood by seminarians, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. They think Jesus is saying to Satan, I'm God, you should serve me. When in fact, Jesus is saying, no, no, I have a God. I have a Father and I will serve him only, right? So do you see how it goes down? Mm-hmm. So you start with mighty son of God. Okay, son of God who's provided for and protected to son of God who will serve. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Now, you see, now I actually see it kind of reverse. Okay, see? <laughs> but only well, because, right. Yeah. O- only be- maybe both answers are probably <laughs> well, right. Well, no, just because the, um, the first temptation is so personalized. Okay. It's only affecting him, food ah, for okay. him. The okay. second is if you locate it at the temple, yes. you have the people of Israel. Okay. And the third, you've got the entire world. Oh, the nice. The entire realm. Oh, that's not, well, that fits nicely. And so you kind of have this movement from... You alone. Are you just you, for yourself? Right. To you and the people nice. of God, to finally you and the entire world. Well, that works well, doesn't it? Yeah, and are you, you know, of, what, of what, what, what have you come for? The lower he gets, right. the broader the work. Right, yeah. yeah. So. We should record this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so and, and now in Luke, you know, you end with a temple, and, right. I, and I wonder if that's significant, that 
Right. You know, the temple that, is so important for it is, yeah, and, and will Jesus be protected in the temple? No, he won't be protected. That's the point. He's going up there to die. But, again, that's... Well, that's, I kind of think of, uh, for some reason, the, the closure with the, uh, the realms, the, yeah. the world itself, yeah. makes yeah. me think of the genealogy with, what is it, the no king, king, no king, you know, uh -huh. that, the reference in the, right. in the three sections or the three yeah. divisions. Um, right. And uh, I don't know. But. Yeah, yeah. But, but the, I really like, actually, the way that fits together. That, again, the broader the scope of Jesus' uh, what effect, right. the lower he goes in order to carry it out. So, yeah. To being a servant. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. To, exactly, to being the Lord's faithful servant. Again, where it, the people weren't. So, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then I, I have had this thought, too, that, okay, if, is there something that we can learn for our battle, you know, in the world, now that we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, and I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's use Bible verses to fight the devil, although that's true. I, I think it's, I think me even on a more basic level is hold fast to who you are. So more of a foundational identity question. Because I, I think a lot of temptation comes at me at least, and Satan tries to get me to forget who I actually am mm -hmm. and the implications of that. And so Jesus, he doesn't waver in who he is. He knows who he is. If you're the son of God, if you're this kind of son of God. No, no, I'm not that kind. I am the son of God, but I'm this kind. So I wonder if that's an invitation for me to remember that I am, my identity is defined by Christ. Mm -hmm. See? Mm -hmm. And so if that's who I am, then when a temptation comes, I might at least... <laughs> sometimes have a fighting chance to... Right. To I, think, I think that's a, that's a great point to emphasize in our preaching. Um, I, I never will forget that when my, my parents dropped me off for my first year of college, the last thing my dad said to me was, remember who you are. Oh, nice. Yeah. Obviously, and you'll at never first forget I didn't, it. Yeah. And at first, I, you know, I thought, well, what is he, what's he talking about? You know, that, right. I thought about that, and I, you know, that, that's important. Yeah. Because you're going to face right. all kinds of challenges. Right. College is a unique experience. Mm -hmm. And people are facing those every day of their lives. Every single Remember day. who you are. Right. right. And if you have a champion like Jesus. Right. Who has shown you the way and won the victory. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's your brother. Remember who you are. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's great for facing. And in a sense, I mean, your comment earlier about um, our, uh, how sometimes faith or religion for us is reduced to once a week on Sunday, yeah. um, at least we could say this is an opportunity to remember who we are. Right. That, that, that gathering, that weekly gathering, yes. is once again a, a memory of, you know, I am not just this person who works at this place. I am actually a child of God joined to these people of God. Right. 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 People that I don't know very well. Right. <laughs> Nevertheless. To, but God has joined us together. Exactly. As his people. Yeah. In this world. Yeah. I'm, I'm currently out of the custom of it, but uh, the catechism's reminder that in the morning you make the sign of the Holy Cross. I mean, that, yeah. I mean well, okay, that's, it's an identity thing. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, if we could just always and ever remember this, well, then the battle would get even fiercer, right? Because Satan wouldn't yeah. give up. So, right. Well, did you want to say, I, I didn't have it listed, but I was wondering if you wanted to say anything about the uh, transfiguration 
Uh, oh, my stars, yeah. Particularly since you had referenced how the same voice mm -hmm. with an addition to that voice yeah. uh, at the Transfiguration. Um, well, I, I think it's, it's, it's crucial there that, you know, at that point, you know, Jesus is sort of beginning his, his journey to Jerusalem. From yeah. that point on, he's yeah. fixed, his face is fixed toward Jerusalem, and um, the Father is simply reminding um, the disciples, mm -hmm. listen to him, follow him, pay right. attention to what he does. Right. Um, you don't know what's going on. You're, you've, you're clueless up to this point. And it's going to get worse because he wants to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to be saying, well, wait, why would mm -hmm. that's, you know, mm -hmm. Peter's going to say, no, don't let that happen. That's right, not the right, plan. Right, right, so right. They don't, they're not clued into the plan. Right. But the Father says, listen to him. Um, right. And, and we, do, we need to do that too. Yeah. You know, yeah. At that point, because we're beginning the Lenten journey, and we better pay right. attention to what he says, because that's the clue right. to understanding what's going to take place. Right. Yeah, and uh, you know, Peter, uh, uh, you know, it is good Lord to be here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He, you know, it's kind of funny. He actually interrupts a conversation. You know, here's Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. Peter interrupts. And then God interrupts him while he was still speaking the cloud, you know. So it's like, shut up, you know. And so, well, exactly. And Ron, I think that's exactly right. So this glorious one, you'd think Peter would have known that he should be quiet, see. But he doesn't. So God, you know, listened to him. And what has he been talking about? Oh, the first passion prediction, take up your cross and follow me, right? And then coming down from the mountain, right. Elijah, suffering, son of man, crucified, I mean, the whole thing. So, so the transfiguration is located in a, in a context, at least in Matthew, especially in Matthew, maybe, where this, this revolutionary teaching about Christ's own destiny and our call to follow him in a not very spectacular and often very difficult road. Mm -hmm. So, so it, I mean, the, the typical move, I think, is quite right, where, okay, you get prepared for that by seeing the glory, you know, so that you're not deceived into thinking that difficulty means defeat, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, you know, so you're sustained by the vision so that you can make it down through this difficult path. I think that's quite right. But well, when he, when he descends from the mountain, isn't that with a child possessed by the demon? Yeah, and right, right. Disciples. They I can't mean, do it. Raphael has that beautiful painting of the Transfiguration where he has both scenes oh, at the same time. Yeah, right. So you have the paintings almost divided right in the middle. You have the Transfiguration at the top. And okay. meanwhile, down below, you have nine disciples frustrated, cowering, pointing Unable. at the way. And this child that is possessed. Interesting trying yeah. to figure it out. So you've got yeah. these two things just right. starkly contrasted. Right, right. So, so the glorious Son of God goes down back into the brokenness. The disciples aren't listening. Right. Jesus has actually given them authority to cast out demons. Right. I mean, seven chapters earlier, you know, yeah. which is probably why he calls them, O oh, faithless generation. I mean, it's about the harshest thing Jesus ever says to his disciples. Right. Um, but yeah, the theme of listening, you know, listen to him. Uh, is absolutely central. And so Lent is a special time uh, yeah, to It's a great time for the, the church to really yeah. contemplate what, what the sacrifice of Christ is all about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And right. we're preparing for it. Right. You know, I've always, uh, uh, just because I bring stuff up, I've always wondered why is it, you know, Lenten devotion uh, sometimes tends to, at least I think, it, traditionally it's a negative thing. You give up something. 
for Lent. Why, why isn't it more positive? I mean, in the sense of, well, for my Lenten devotion, you know, I'm going to make an extra special effort to visit, you know, my neighbor who's crippled. Or, I mean, that's, that's, that's denying myself because I want my time to be my own. I want my money to be my own. But it's doing something. Yeah. Positive, I mean, the great commandment yeah. is not to not do something. It's to love, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I just wonder why in the history, it's probably a medieval thing. We need Paul Robinson or somebody yeah. here at the moment. But... <laughs> But why not uh, deny myself and follow Jesus to my neighbor? Yeah. See that? Mm -hmm. During Lenten, you know, if, if a person is moved to take on some sort of right. uh, yeah. extra meaningful effort, if I could say that way. Yeah. I don't know. I always feel that sometimes it just becomes a, a second try with your New Year's resolutions. <laughs> well, our colleague Paul, I think he calls... Uh, he, He's a medievalist, too, so it's like he's the last morbid remnant of medieval piety. <laughs> That's not unnecessarily negative, and I probably made that up. I shouldn't attribute that to Paul. So I think the pairing is going to be the, um, the transfiguration and then yes. the temptation. Right. right. Yeah, so and right. then we'll move into, into Lent. Yes. Uh, do you have any, what do you think about that, about um, the liturgical reordering of the events in the life of Christ in the yeah. Gospel of Matthew for theological purposes, in a yeah. sense, that the transfiguration bringing to a culmination, season of epiphany, right. uh, revealing, and then moving into Lent with the uh, temptation. Well, it's consistent. I mean, um, yeah, revealing glory, this, but it's an unexpected glory. It's a glory that moves towards an inglorious end. Mm -hmm. um, so... So I, I, think it, I think it works theologically. Mm -hmm. So that brings us to the uh, passion narrative. Right. And uh, normally, uh, I think every year, uh, the Good Friday is going to be from John. And they're linking the John's passion narrative with Isaiah 52 and 53. Mm -hmm. But on Palm Sunday slash Passion Sunday, you do have the opportunity to uh, proclaim the passion narrative in relationship to Matthew's gospel. So is there, I was just wondering if you could uh, think about what might be distinctive about that and then also the struggles of preaching that on the uh, entry into Holy Week. Um, right, yeah, Ron, I was going to ask what you thought yeah. about, because, you know, I haven't been full-time parish ministry. I, when, did, when did the shift happen when we're supposed to, <clears throat> in a sense, stop doing Palm Sunday? And I then, think even with Lutheran worship, it had yes, know, it was, Passion yeah. Sunday. Well, yeah, yeah, see, yeah, and, I, and we, we still had TLH, you know. Yeah, yeah. I did too. So I never made I the transition, yeah. right. and so I'm yeah. still... Well, then, so and, and at, at our congregation, we, we normally have our, our confirmation on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday. Oh, okay, so yeah. it's still so Palm it's, Sunday. It's still really Palm Sunday. And okay. Now we're trying to do a little bit of both. You know, we do an opening part of the service, which is... You know, Palm Sunday, and right? Hosanna, and so forth. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. It's kind of hard to incorporate all of those things because the, the gospel <laughs> is so long anyway. <laughs> you know, you have the question: right. What are you going to yeah. concentrate? You want to preserve the liturgy at all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, certainly they hang together. I mean, you know, I've often approached it as: look at look at what the people in Jerusalem were doing on Palm Sunday, hailing a new king who was coming, you know, and praising him. Right. And by the end of the week, you know, you have the a complete reversal. Not necessarily the same people, but, you know. Well, you're still supposed to see the reversal, though. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
Right. And um, that's how quickly, you know, things change. Right. You know, and, uh, but all of it is being orchestrated by God. Mm -hmm. It's his plan. Exactly. And um, these, you know, it's like if it's a drama, God is the director, and, you know, these are just bit parts that Pilate and these right. other people play. Right. You know, Jesus is really in control almost. Mm -hmm. uh, not yes. maybe so much as he is in John, but... No, well, the scriptural plan is in control. It's, that's in control. And yeah. again, that theme that you introduced, you know, at the beginning of this segment on a fulfillment, I mean, it's when they come to arrest Jesus, which is in 26, you know, you think you're out here to arrest a robber. But you know what? I used to sit in the temple every day and you didn't arrest me. Here's why you're really out here, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Um, so it's not just, I mean, interestingly, at least as I look at it, it's not just the... Uh, the words of the scriptures to these people at this time, which mm -hmm. we would say the Old Testament scriptures, but even right. the words of Jesus himself right. are being fulfilled. Yes. And so you're yes. kind of seeing both of those voices right. uh, just hovering around the edges of everything that's happening. Right. 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 And Jesus has already prepared his disciples for this because he, he made it clear right. what was going to happen. Yes, he did. When it, what's actually happening, he's, he's strangely silent. Right, he stopped it, it, talking now. He stops talking. That's right. There's no reply. That's right. You know, and Pilate marvels. And, uh, but of course, that's what Isaiah said was going to happen. Sheep, right. lamb before shears is dumb. Right. So he exactly. opens not his mouth. Right. He doesn't need to. Mm -hmm. Right. He's not making a defense. He's already identified with sinners. Yes, yes. He's, he's going to the, the judgment on mm -hmm. our behalf. And no one knows it except Jesus. Yes. Right, right. And, and I was going to say that theme too is, we'll get to it in a second, but this is actually part of the emphasis, part of the emphasis in the resurrection appearance account is the reliability of what Jesus said. Mm -hmm. So the angel, just as he said, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that's one way, if you were going to preach, try to focus on something unique in Matthew, it would be that Easter, I mean, it's a lot more than that, but it, valid, it's, it's, it validates this, the words of Jesus, mm -hmm. right? So whatever Jesus says, happens, whatever Jesus says is true. So that, that's one kind of Matthean, uh, kind of a smaller theme, but you could, a person could hold on to that when you got to Easter Sunday. So. Well, and you, and you know, as um, we're kind of connected here with not so much as John is with Isaiah 52 and 53, but more with Isaiah 50, where the psalmist, you know, or the, where the, the prophet is saying, um, Jesus is going to rely upon God. He's going to trust in him. He's going to, he's going to be the one who delivers him. Right. And, and that's a good theme for us too. You know, well, this is God's plan being fulfilled. Right. Rely upon it. Trust it. Right. Yeah, but you, have, I mean, so, but you do have that tension of the people who have heard his words yeah. actually quoting them back at him. You who said you were going to destroy the temple in three days. And so you've got this human misunderstanding exactly. of the very things that he has mm -hmm. said even right. while... Yeah. They're being fulfilled, right. just not in the way that we had Not in the way. <laughs> Right, that unexpected thing again. Now in Mark, the, um, the centurion's confession is huge. Right. Uh, how does it play out in Matthew? I mean, is it uh, as big of an event as it is in Mark? Or is uh, well, I, I would say it's, it's, uh, it's not as big because in Mark it stands out like the sole right. confession of Jesus as the Son of God by any human being, any human figure, right? Um, so it's not quite as unique, but I, I still think it's, it's very similar. Again, Matthew and Mark track very closely in the Passion narratives. I mean, they are, Luke, it's interesting if you do the, compare the synopsis, this is where Luke is really, has unique stories about going to Herod, you know, and 
and those things. So, uh, so no, it, it's quite, it's quite strong. Uh, interestingly, it's not just the centurion, but it's those who were guarding with him. Oh, okay. See, they actually, they all say it actually, uh, in um, verse, uh, let's see, 54. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see, the centurion yeah. and those with him guarding Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were very afraid, and it's all plural. Yeah. See? Wow. So, um, but, uh, so, so I think it is big, and I think it, it does, you know, so, in fact, I got an email about this about three days ago for some reason, uh, you know, should we see this as a real confession or is he just, does he not know what he's saying? But again, this theme of Gentile believers. Right. See, in this gospel especially, I think we should see this as one more amazing instance of God revealing to an unexpected candidate for faith, you know, who this Jesus really is. So, um, so yeah, it, it's not quite as big as Mark, but it's still... It's, it's very it's similar. It's big in a different way. It, it is, right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And again, King of the Jews, right? Mm -hmm. The reign of God. This is, I mean, the, <laughs> the implications for this are absolutely stunning. And again, we don't need St. Paul, although we all love St. Paul. I mean, it's, Paul got it from Jesus. He just packages it, obviously under inspiration. He packages it for Gentiles in Corinth. So when we get to the, uh, to the resurrection, um, we have the opportunity to preach on the resurrection from Matthew. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering uh, if uh, there are any reflections on, on anything distinctive about Matthew's account. Well, it's apocalyptic. I mean, just as Matthew has more uh, signs at Jesus' death, including this odd account of the people being raised, you know, temp right, or yeah. reanimated, however yeah, you want to yeah. say it. I mean, they were really dead, and then they were really alive, at least for a while. So, so that's the end of, that's the judgment day. That's what happens on judgment day. Well, so you got earthquakes, angels. So, so this is the end of the world, but it's already happened to one man for all. So, and, and you know, all, it's interesting, all of the canonical gospels are very, reticent to actually, they just tell the Easter accounts, they don't interpret them. You know, the angel doesn't say, and Christ is raised as firstborn from the dead. We have to get that from Paul. They just kind of tell it as if you're supposed to be able to spin out the implications of true and permanent resurrection. But that requires, you know, a worldview. I mean, I, I just think Easter is very hard to preach because, again, a lot of people maybe who aren't there a lot, uh, we're glad they're there, of course. But this is a story that makes sense only if you're looking for God to renew the earth. If you're not looking for that, it's, it's a little hard to, to bring it out, I think. So, Easter is your future. I mean, that's the message, right? Um, and it is very apocalyptic in Matthew. So that, that does stand, you asked what, st you asked what stands yeah. out. That really does. It really does. So, um, and then there's a fun little thing. Can I, can yeah. I talk about feet? Have I ever told you about this? No. About feet, you know, in, in uh, verses 8 to 10, the, I think this is only in Matthew, where Jesus himself meets the women. And then verse 9, and you do. <laughs> Look, Jesus greeted them saying, and of course what he says should probably be translated as, hello, 
<laughs> you know, because it's the Nordic greetings, right? But it's just the word hello, right? And then uh, Matthew writes that the, the women approached and they grabbed his feet and worshipped. See, this is real worship now, you know, full bore worship. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the great scholar Dale Allison uh, researched the significance of, the gra of grabbing the feet. And he, and he um, researched in sort of the history of the tradition as a scholar of his caliber can do. And it's, again, it's polyvalent. It means more than one thing. It's humility. It's gratitude. It's, but the dominant interpretation is that it proves the physicality of Jesus' resurrection because in neither the ancient or the modern world do ghosts have feet. And, there, and there's even a third century Christian document. It's a phony one, which actually says this. That this is how I know that the Lord, when I was walking with him after Easter, I knew that he was really raised from the dead because I looked back and I saw his footprints in the sand, which is kind of a takeoff on this thing that's on everybody's wall. <clears throat> so, so, so I have to mention this. I, I mean, the, the Holy Spirit wants me to mention this. So, so now, and no one has taken me up, but Ron Timothy Lutheran. You know, maybe you could, guys could be the first, see? We could certainly so look into that. On Easter yeah. morning, there's a new liturgical greeting. You say, Christ has feet, and you respond, he has feet indeed, right? So, isn't that funny? In the ancient world, ghosts float. And there's even a Gnostic document from the third century that actually uh, one of the disciples is supposed to be talking about his time during Jesus' ministry on the earth. And he actually, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, but it's actually true. It's in the, the Henneke Schneemelker, you know, New Testament Apocrypha volumes in which this guy, this disciple is telling another disciple, yeah, he says, I know that he was really our Gnostic, docetic Christ because he and I were walking along the beach and I looked back and there was only one set of footprints. Mine. See, the Gnostic Jesus shouldn't wow. have feet. Wow. Yeah. See? So, so isn't this great? I mean, Christ has feet. He has feet indeed. I mean, this is, this is important. So. And it's only in Matthew. So, but again, you, you could actually talk about, you could preach the importance of bodies, right. of embodied. Oh, and guess what? You're probably on that Sunday going to be eating something right. and drinking something. I mean, you could actually take off from this, might take too long to explain, uh, and talk about the physicality of resurrection and right. salvation. And, right. And right. It's, not just a, uh, it's not just a disembodied, it's going to be better in the end. Exactly. It's a very... Tangible, super real, duper embodied, physical, yeah, right, revelation, yeah, and it Lips. matters. Yeah. It matters because, yeah, if bodies, if bodies just decay, then the devil wins. Yeah, yeah. So, it's really fun. Makes you want to do push-ups, or something. Yeah. So. What I find, what I find interesting is that in the in the angels' uh, message to the women, there is. Uh, moving Jesus. I mean, in a sense that there's, yeah. there's an emphasis upon the transitory nature that right. he's going ahead of you into Galilee. Into Galilee, right. So it's, uh, it's not bringing about this, uh, this stationary moment where we just stay here right. and live in this, but right. there's a, a much larger vision of a, of a reign that's going to continue. There's work to be done. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Which points toward the, the Great Commission. Right. 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 And uh, once he gets together with his disciples, that's what he's talking about. Right. No, that's right. And we had, remember back in chapter 4, we had light in Galilee of the Gentiles, right? Mm -hmm. And right. that was anticipate. Guess what? Guess what? And, and the Great Commission then is mostly about Jesus. 
mostly. Mm -hmm. All authority has been given to me. Mm -hmm. That's why you can go make disciples, because I am with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's mostly about Jesus. Right. It's not really mostly about us, yeah. although we obviously have work to do. Uh -huh. That's yeah. why we come together, because we need to be reminded. Yeah, right, right. There's lots of other voices. Reminded who out we there. are, reminded what's our purpose, right. what's our identity, right. what's the commission. Yeah. All of those things are tied together. That's right. And he even gives us, he tells us how long to keep going. All the days until the consummation of the age, right? Which apparently hasn't happened yet, so I guess, I guess we should keep going. Keep going. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Good. Which is a good, encouraging word. It is a very encouraging word. Yeah. Us and for you who are preaching this word right. to others uh, out in this world. So.